Hey, listen, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Okay, this is the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. Um, we're going to be actually ending um, 1 Samuel chapter or the, the book of 1 Samuel today, stepping into 2 Samuel as well today. Uh, but we've been in a series called The Broken King, and we've been exploring what the life of David looks like. And uh, today is part seven of that series, and we're going to look um, at a tragic death uh, that happens in this particular text. I want to start, though, with this statement. You've heard it before. Um, not sure who gets credit for this, uh, but it's been said that the heart of the problem is the problem of the, of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. What does that actually mean? It means that sin originates from the heart. That's what it means. That your sin and that my sin, it originates in the heart. Sins do not make us sinful. We sin because our hearts are sinful. You understand that, right? So sin, it originates in the heart. It's not what we do that makes us who we are. It's who we are that causes us to do what we do. You sin because sin is in your heart. The book of Matthew, chapter 12, would say it like this. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of your mouth, like it or not, comes from where? It comes from your heart. So the next time you say something that you don't mean and you're trying to retrieve it and you say, oh, I didn't mean that, it came from the heart. And that heart is sinful. And the sin in that heart has come out of your mouth. A few chapters later, that was Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 15, it says it this way, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Every thought that goes through your, your mind and your head, it comes from the evil of your own heart. He says, for every, or for out of it, out of the heart, every evil thought, murder. Some of you are like, murder? I would never go that far to actually murder someone. But what does Matthew chapter 5 say? For if you even have anger towards your brother in Christ, you've already murdered them. The next word is adultery. Well, I would never commit adultery. But what does James or Matthew chapter 5 say? Even lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And he goes further to say sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. Sin does not originate outside of us. Sin originates inside of us. Why? Because sin originates in the heart. So this morning, I want to start our time together by asking you a question. And this question is really going to feed the thought of everything that we say today, okay? The question is this. What rules your heart? What rules your heart? You might ask it this way. Who rules your heart? Who rules your heart? The reason this uh, question is important is because really what fuels the heart, what comes from the heart is going to drive every behavior that you make. So we need to get to the bottom of what's in our heart and ask that question, what rules our heart? Now, listen, this morning's text is going to be a little bit different, okay? This morning's text is going to be a warning to us all. It's been a warning to me this week. It's going to be a warning to you today. Last week was full of comedy, uh, bathroom humor, right? All right, so some of you, Mr. Jay Covington and I were talking about it Friday night. We were saying, you know, we'll never look at that text the same again, okay? It's this potty humor all over it. 
uh, we laugh a little, we chuckle a little, we blush a little, whatever the case may be. Well, this, this Sunday is not going to be like last Sunday. Today's going to be more serious than that. We're asking the question of who rules your heart. And what we're going to see in this text of Scripture is that God gives us two examples of a heart that's not ruled by God. And then he gives us an example of a heart that is ruled by God. So what we're going to see in the two people whose heart is not ruled by God, this should feel like for all of us that we're standing in the mirror of God's word, taking a look at ourselves, and we see some of them in us. That's what we should see this morning. So it's going to be a little bit more serious. It's going to be a little bit more heavy. It's going to have some weight to it, but that's what we're doing today. So we're going to begin with this. What does a heart that's not ruled by God look like? Let's begin with a heart not ruled by God. The first example of a heart that's not ruled by God we see here in this text is the example of Saul, the example of King Saul. See, the life of Saul is a warning to us because it reveals to us that a little sin leads to a lot of sin. Did you hear that? A little sin leads to a lot of sin. Some of you have heard that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Some of you have also heard the proverb that a little fox ruins the whole vineyard. A little sin inside of us will lead to a lot of sin inside of us. That's why it's important. In fact, it's imperative that you and I deal with the little sins that are inside of us and not ignore those little sins because those little sins will fester and become even larger looming sins in our life. So the picture of Saul is the picture of a downward spiral into destruction. And the same thing is true for you, ma'am, and the same thing is true for you, sir. If you do not deal with the little sins that are in your life, if you ignore the little sins that are in your life, if I ignore the little sins that are in my life, I am taking the first step in the wrong direction on a downward spiral of my life into destruction and despair. And we're going to see that in the life of Saul here in 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to read the first four verses. It says this. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain in Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Okay, so they're now dead. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to the armor bearer, or his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. This is how the life of Israel's first king, King Saul, would end. His life would end by watching his sons die right in front of him and being absolutely unable to do anything about it. His life would end by his armor bearer not willing to end his life for him, so instead he decides to end his own life himself. Now, if you keep reading, what you're going to see as though you might think that's as bad as it can get, it's not. In fact, what would happen then is that they would take the armor that this king was wearing and they would go hang that armor in a Jewish temple 
And as the armor hung there in the temple, it was on public display testifying how great and how powerful the Philistine gods were because they have defeated God's king, King Saul. And if that's not enough, they would take his body, his rotten corpse, and they would hang it on a wall in the middle of their city. The Bible says this, so that the birds could come and eat away at his flesh. Completely humiliated. A shameful death. And then even after death, this is how he was respected. This is how he was, quote, honored. His body left for the birds to pick and to eat from. You know, the irony of this story is that this is happening in the exact same city where King Saul was first crowned king. His life has run full course from the beginning of his kingship to the end of his life where it all started and where it all finishes, this is what we remember of him. It's a cruel, it's a shameful death. It's a dark moment in King Saul's life, but here's the deal. King Saul did not arrive here overnight. King Saul didn't go to bed and wake up and he was in this point in his life. Instead, there was a slow, steady progression of sin that took place in his life. It was a downward spiral into, into destruction, despair. A little sin led to a lot of sin. A little sin led to a lot of sin. And that lot of sin will lead ultimately to the taking of his own life. Now I want you to think back at the journey of King Saul. Remember his journey? He's the first king of Israel, and when he becomes the king, he was the people's king, by the way. You might remember, they didn't have a king. The people wanted a king, so God gave them what they wanted, and King Saul became that, that man. And at the beginning of his kingship, the Spirit of God was upon his life. In fact, for King Saul, he was his people's prized possession. They loved this king at the beginning. Not only did they love him, but he fit the part of what they thought a king should look like. He was a warrior. He was a skilled military leader. He led Israel to many victorious battles. But somewhere along the way, his heart started to drift away from God. He allowed immorality to creep into his life, and he did not deal with it. He allowed a little sin in his life, and he chose to ignore it. He started resisting and rejecting the perfect will of God. In fact, he flirted around with disobedience until he started to drown in his own rebellion. You know the story. Saul became bitter. He became angry. He became jealous. You saw this right after David went to battle with Goliath and defeated him. He, he was starving for attention. How do we know? Because when David was, was praised for beating, the Goliath, for beating Goliath by the women that came into the streets and all the people of Israel who came into the streets, that, that, that caused an uproar in, in Saul. Saul didn't want to share his glory with anyone else. He was starving for attention. He, he wanted to be in charge. Saul wanted to be in control. He becomes a slave to his own desires, the Bible would say. And eventually... The very hand of God that was upon him for, for the first part of his kingship was no longer on him as he approached the end 
of his kingship. The sad reality of this story is that this is not where it all ends. In chapter 28, Saul reaches the lowest point of his life. What did he do? He resorted to a witch in Endor. He got tied up and tangled with witchcraft, idolatry. And finally, as we see in our text today, it would end in him taking his very own life. Now listen. The life of King Saul is the picture of a life of a heart that's not ruled by God. It's in your Bible, it's in my Bible for one reason, to serve as a warning to you and a warning to me. Saul didn't go from being anointed to the next day visiting a witch. It started small. He started to mess with a little sin that led to a lot of sin. Just a little bit of disobedience that eventually led to a lot of disobedience that eventually led to a life that never would return to God. And the sad reality this morning is that there are some of you in this room right now who are on the same spiral, downward spiral into destruction that King Saul was on. The, the sad reality is that some of you in this room right now have tempered and tampered with just a little sin and you look around you and you think, well, it hasn't hurt anybody and it hasn't really hurt me. So you continue to indulge in those very same sins thinking that the God of the universe is quite okay. Maybe you have the thought, if you know what, I'm not, I'm not swimming in a pool of sin. I haven't, I haven't taken a dive into the pool of rebellion. But I'm just kind of, you know, dabbing my foot in the water. You know how you do that with a pool? The water you think might be cold, so you, what do you do? You test the water. Put your foot in it to see uh, what it's going to be like when you jump in. And what you do is you feel, oh, okay, that's not that bad. A little cold, not too, not too shabby. I can handle that. And there's no effects of the first, you know, the first opportunity that you dabbed your foot in the water. There was no real effect on you. So you dab your foot in again. You put a little bit more of your foot. Maybe you go to the steps and you put your whole foot in. Whatever the case may be, before you know it, you just jump in and you swim in the pool. And the same thing is true with the way that we approach our sin nature. We dab our toe in the water of sin, and we don't see any real effect immediately, so we keep putting our foot further and further into the water, and before we know it, we're swimming in rebellion. Listen, rebellion, no matter how minor it may seem, the Bible says it is as witchcraft in the eyes of God. And not one soul in this room would probably say, you know what? I would resort to witchcraft just like King Saul did. Probably all of us would say we'd never go that far. Yet in our slight rebellion, that is exactly how far we have already gone. It's a punch in the gut. None of us like to think of our simple compromises on the same playing field as witchcraft, but according to Scripture, that's exactly what it is. So what is my point? What is my point when we take a look at King Saul? Here's what I believe this should teach us. 
It should teach us this morning that you and I, as men and women of faith, that those of you in this room who have placed your trust, your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your own salvation, those of you who refer to yourselves as followers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, it teaches us this. We must take sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. The sins that are in my life, the sins that are in your lives, they're they're too much to be ignored. We must see sin the way that God sees it. See, it will solve small compromises that grew into a dependence on the demonic, and it is your small compromises that lead you to depend on the demonic as well. Truth is, is most of us in this room you may never go get your palm read by Cleo. I don't even know if Cleo's still around. She was around in the late 90s. I used to see her commercials all the time. That's why I use her. You may never go that far. And you might not call the tarot reader and get your cards read so that you can predict the future of your own life. You may never pray specifically like Hollywood does many times to Satan or science or whatever other false god may be out there. But I promise you this. Someone or something will begin to play the role of God in your life if you aren't aren't careful. So who? So what rules your heart? Disobedience, even in small areas, is what breaks your fellowship with God. I was thinking about this this week. I mean, honestly, I mean, can you imagine Adam and Eve... If they're anything like me, I mean, maybe you guys are saintly, I don't know, but if they're anything like me, could you imagine Adam and Eve standing before God and holding the count for eating the apple and stepping in, you know, creating the mess, the drama that you and I live in, right? I could just imagine them thinking much like I think. I mean, it's, I, I bit an apple. Like the whole world's flipped upside down and everybody now has a sin nature because I bit an apple. That sounds ridiculous. And that's how we approach our sin. It doesn't hurt anybody. I bit the apple. That's all I did. But it's more than that. You disobeyed God. You rebelled against the king's rule and reign. You tried to take matters into your own hands and become your own God. That's what you did. You said, God, I see what you say and I hear what you say, but that's not good for me. I'm going to do the things that I want to do the way that I want to do them. That's where the problem lies. Is when we take a deep dive into the look at our own hearts, we must admit that there's a lot of King Saul in us all. We like to dab our toe in rebellion as well. We like to flirt around with things that aren't intended for us as well. So my question is, what path are you on in your life? Who rules your heart? What rules your heart? That's the first example. It's the life of King Saul. He is a picture of one whose heart is not ruled by God. But there's another picture of a heart that's not ruled by God. Not only do we see King Saul, but we also see an Amalekite man. Now look over in 2 Samuel. Okay, 2 Samuel, we're going to be in chapter 1. Now, as you're turning there, the Amalekite is a warning to those of us who are searching for acceptance and approval from anyone other than God. Did you hear that? It's it's a warning to those of us in this room 
who are looking, searching for acceptance and approval from anyone or anywhere other than God himself. What's happening in this text, just to set the stage for you, is the Amalekite man, he comes to David, and he reports to David that Saul is now dead. And as you can imagine, this was shocking news to David because David knew that he could have took Saul's life already, but he chose not to do that because he knew that he was the Lord's anointed. And because David made that decision, now all of a sudden he learns that he's dead, and this shocks him. So what does anybody in that state ask? Well, what happened? How did that happen? Now watch how the Amalekite man responds. It says in verse 8, chapter 1, 2 Samuel. And he, talking about Saul, said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me. Talking about Saul. This is his story. This is the narrative he's painting. Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, there's only one way to say this, and it's not gentle, okay? Um, I tried to be as charitable as I could be to the Amalekite man, but this is the best I could do, okay? The Amalekite man is not telling the truth. That's it. I mean, he's just not telling the truth. You, you have, you've already read how the life of King Saul ended. And now the Amalekite man is giving you a different narrative that doesn't fit the actual scenario. The, the Amalekite man is not telling the truth. He has fabricated a story. He has made this story up, and he is sharing it with David. Again, what we see here is a heart that's not ruled by God. This Amalekite, as you might already know, is an enemy to the people of Israel. If you remember, David had just returned from battle with the Amalekites and defeated them. So now this Amalekite man is standing before David, and he comes stumbling up to David. His clothes are probably torn. It looks like he's been on the battlefield, and maybe he was on the battlefield. I don't know. He has dirt on his face, and he stinks. You know, he looks like a warrior. And he comes up to David, and he shares this story while holding the crown of Saul in his hand. What's interesting is if you study the history of this text, what you're going to see is actually the Amalekite man is showing some respects to David here in this passage. He was respectful and he was honorable until he opened his mouth. That's where he got himself in trouble. What comes out of the mouth is a clear indicator of what's in the heart. Again, a picture of one whose heart is not ruled by God. What does he do? This Amalekite comes up with some fictitious propaganda. He is trying to sell himself to King David. That's what he's trying to do here. I mean, why on earth would this man make up such a story? Why would he come to David and tell David a story that is absolutely ludicrous and is absolutely not true? But as far as David knows, it's true. David doesn't know. It's the first he's heard of the events. Why would he do that, though? The answer is simple. 
the Amalekite man wants to impress David. He wants to be important. He wants to be known. See, even in the face of the slaughter of Saul and even in the face of the slaughter of Saul's sons, he fabricates this story in hopes that his life would be spared. And maybe, just maybe, not only would David spare his life, but maybe he would invite him in to his court where he could live and reign with David forever. He wants David to accept him. He wants David to approve of him. He's taking advantage of a situation so that he might be able to gain some power and some prestige from it. Church, hear me, please. That is a very dangerous place to be. It's manipulative. That's exactly what he's doing. He wants someone to approve of him, to accept him. So like I said, he creates this fictitious propaganda so that he can look heroic in the eyes of the one that he wants to impress. You and I, we often do the same thing. We tell stories about our past that make us look heroic and we exaggerate every single detail because we want the person that we're telling the story to to think more about us than they should or they would. We exaggerate our accomplishments and achievements. Why? In hopes of impressing the people around us. We want to gain a little power. We want to seem a little bit important. We want to be received by these people and feel important to them. Here's the truth. For some of us, even in this room, our moral compass changes with our surroundings. We're one person on Sunday morning and Man, we are a totally different person on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. We're one person in front of our life group when we're doing community with God's people. Oh, man, but the next business transaction, we're a totally different person. We, we know what fluffs the feathers of our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we sit in the same room with them or sit at the same table with them, we tell them all the things that they need to know that make us love Jesus. We want them to be impressed with the way we live, impressed with the way we parent, impressed with what we look like. Our moral compass, it changes with the people that we are around. You know what that's called? It's called pretending. It's called pretending. It's our own way of giving fictitious propaganda to people that literally we're sitting beside right now. We long for acceptance and approval. So we live dishonest lifestyles. You know where dishonesty is rooted? Dishonesty is rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in unbelief. It's a gospel issue. When I'm not resting in the identity and righteousness that I have in Christ, that he tells me I have in him, I'll be tempted to preserve my dignity. How? By doing whatever it takes to impress you. As long as I can say the right things and do the right things to preserve the dignity that I think I have, then I'll be okay. Why? Why? Because I'm finding my acceptance and my approval from you, 
and not from God. That's anti-gospel. If our identity is in Christ, we don't have to manage our image before each other. We can just be who we are. Be careful what we amen. And here's why. I, I know we all feel this, but I want you to hear it clear. The pressures that are on pastors and pastor spouses because of what you expect sometimes as the church can be borderline ridiculous. You will not ever have a perfect pastor. And your pastor's spouse will never be a perfect spouse. And if you expect more, that is an issue you have to take up between you and God. But at the end of the day, we aren't here to impress you. We're here to exist for an audience of one and to please and honor him. And I'm not talking about just me. I'm talking about anybody in this position. We don't need to fight for our acceptance or approval. Why? Because in Jesus, we're the most accepted and approved people on the planet. We have all the acceptance and approval that we need because we're considered righteous by the blood that's been imputed upon us because of the finished work of Christ Jesus on Calvary. Isn't that a good thing for us all? So we have two pictures here in this text. A picture of Saul, whose heart was not ruled by God. A picture of the Amalekite man, whose heart was not ruled by God. Again, both of these people had hearts that were not ruled by God. And before we go to the third, I need you to hear me clearly, church family. At this point in our time together this morning, you should again be looking at yourself in the mirror of this text. Man, Lord, where have I been deceitful and crafty in order that I might be accepted and approved by other people? Man, Lord, where have I thumped you off the throne of my life and started existing as if I were the one who had final rule and say of my life. This is where we should be. Two pictures of people whose hearts were not ruled by God. And there's a third picture here of a heart that is ruled by God. So the second thing is, what does a heart that's ruled by God look like? We're going to talk about that for just a moment. This is a heart ruled by God. The example of a heart ruled by God is the heart of David. David shows us what the heart of God should look like when it's truly surrendered to him. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 through 14 says this, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Why, why did he tear his clothes? He tore his clothes because he just learned about King Saul's death, right? King Saul is now dead. His son Jonathan is dead as well. This text is going to tell you that. You remember Jonathan and David had a really unique relationship. Uh, but even though King Saul was kind of a, an enemy in the eyes of David in many regards, he still weeps and mourns at the death of King Saul. And it says in verse 12, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Why? Because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? At this point in the text, you would think that David would be celebrating the fact that Saul is dead. Come on, people. 
step into the text for just a moment. If you had to hide for your life in the middle of a cave, time after time after time after time, if you had to leave your new, your new spouse, your new wife, to flee for your own life because her daddy, your now father-in-law, is out to kill you and destroy you, if you had your if you, if you were walking through a room and a spear or javelin was thrown at you to try to pin you to the wall, I mean, you go through the scenarios, the situation, wouldn't you at least celebrate a little when your problem was solved? And David has this opportunity to do just that. Like, he would never have to hide in another cave. He would never have to wonder if he's in the same room as this guy if he's going to have a spear thrown at him. You would think there'd be a little bit of celebration Instead, the Bible says he rips his clothes and he leads his men in a time of mourning for the fallen king. And then he looks at the Amalekite and he says, what on earth were you thinking? How dare you do that? I mean, who are you to think that you can take the Lord's anointed, his life into your own hands and end it? This is backfiring on the Amalekite man. So much so, you know how the story would end? the Amalekite would be executed. Here's where we need to focus. David's reaction here is stunning. It should make no sense to us that David would respond this way. This man is grieving. He is weeping. He is fasting. He is praying as a result of the death of King Saul. Now, why would that seem strange to us? Why would I even make such a big deal out of that? Why does this seem like a foreign concept to us? It seems so foreign because this is not the way that our hearts naturally respond to our enemies. The way we naturally respond is exactly what I said. We celebrate when our enemies plunder. But David doesn't do that. David is showing us a different way. He's showing us the way of a man whose heart is ruled by God. When our hearts are ruled by God, it changes everything. It changes our actions and our reactions and our desires and our priorities and our responsibilities. It changes everything. When our hearts are ruled by God, we begin to love our enemies rather than wanting them dead. When our hearts are ruled by God, we don't laugh in the face of our enemy's calamity. No, we grieve with our enemies even when they're going through times and seasons of trouble. When our hearts are ruled by God, we serve and we love our enemies because that's what we're told to do by God. We do good to those who have betrayed us. We honor those who have hurt us. We respect those who disrespect us. We begin to live in such a way that causes the world to look at us and say, who are you? Who are you? That's not how we do things out here. And it's at that moment that we get to show them that's not my natural reaction either. It's only by the supernatural hand of a holy God and his spirit who now dwells and lives and resides within me that I'm able to respond and react this way. Because my heart's not ruled by me. My heart is now ruled by God. If that's not enough, David pins the eulogy for his enemy. And in this eulogy, he praises him to some degree by mentioning where he was successful. Uh, come on, this is the oldest trick at every funeral. You never hear the bad junk at the funeral, right? And David did the same. 
He didn't tell you about all of his mishaps and mistakes and all the things he did to get him. No, David instead praises him and honors him and respects him. You don't read about his anger or his vengeance or any memories of Saul's, you know, gross infractions of the law against David. Why? Because David didn't care about that. What concerned David was not what King Saul had done to him. What concerned David was what King Saul had done to the kingdom. And that's what this text is trying to show us. David was more concerned about the glory of God being defamed than he was about his own opinions at this moment in the text. Why? Because Saul was meant to point to a greater king. Capital K, king. That's what Saul's life was intended to do, to point to a new coming king that would come to save and redeem all of humanity from all of their sin. But he didn't do that. This wasn't about David. It was about the Lord. Church, who rules your heart? What rules your heart? See, when you think of this king, Saul, dying, he's dying because of his own disobedience. But what that's intended to do is to point you to a king, a coming king, who would die not because of his disobedience, but because of his obedience. King Saul's appoint us to Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by what? Say it out loud. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. King Saul's death was a moment of sad defeat because he was disobedient. King Jesus' death is a moment of triumphant victory. Why? Because he became and stayed and remained obedient. Why was Jesus' death a moment of triumphant victory, you ask? Because without the death of Christ, you and I have no hope and no way back into complete fellowship with God. My disobedience, your disobedience, our small infractions of the law, our small rebellion, our small sins, are what our bites of the apple are what forever separate us from God. And it took someone to come and live a perfect, obedient life to go to a cross and to die and to pay there a ransom for all the sins that I and you have committed. That if we might put our faith and trust in that king, we would have life with him forever.